Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, everyone, to the On Poly Podcast. I'm Steve Pakin. And I'm John Michael McGrath. Today on the pod, back-to-work legislation looms large over education workers after CUPE announces its intention to launch a full-blown strike this week. Premiers across Canada are demanding an increase of federal support to their health ministries, even as Ontario is projected to run surpluses for the next several years. And the Premier and Deputy Premier have now officially gone to court to avoid testifying at the Emergencies Act inquiry. We'll dig into the why of that. It's Tuesday, November 1st, 2022, so let's get to it. Hey, partner. I am just back from Windsor, where we spent the weekend shooting a new venture called TVO Today Live. We did a discussion on the increasing toxicity of Canadian politics and whether what's been happening south of the border can be blamed for that. Uh, That'll be on In prime time, in the week of November 14th, watch our social media feeds for more on that. What's going on with you? Uh, Well, it's November 1st, so I am probably at this point uh, filled with my kids' uh, Halloween candy. I've probably been stealing that uh, all evening and probably into the morning. Did you want to bring some into work for your podcast partner? No, no, absolutely not. It's it's all mine. You can't have any. (laughs) (laughs) I share so much, but this, this is mine. I understand. Got to draw lines. Got to draw lines. I know. Well, okay. Regular listeners will know that um, off the top, we've begun to share comments that we get about what people like or don't like about the job that we're doing. And here's a critical one that we want to share off the top today. Someone called us out on Twitter for neglecting to mention something in our municipal roundup last week. The person's name is Colin Carmichael. And here's what he said. Kind of surprised that the mayoral race in Cambridge did not make your on-poly roundup the relatively close upset of the incumbent, a former liberal cabinet minister, by a former liberal organizer, is surely noteworthy. This is embarrassing to me because I had said explicitly in last week's episode that I couldn't think of a single major mayor in uh, Ontario who who lost re-election. And I knew that I, I should have checked Waterloo Region. In my brain, I, there was this nagging voice in the back of my head, and I forgot to do it. So quite right to uh, call me out on that one. Uh, The incumbent mayor of Cambridge, Ontario, uh, who was Catherine McGarry, uh, was a former uh, minister in Kathleen Wynne's government, was defeated uh, by Jan Liggett, uh, 46% to 42%. Relatively narrow loss, but a loss uh, for uh, McGarry. Uh, You know, a difference of about 1,100 votes. So uh, thank you for the correction. Sincerely, you know, if you're going to get stuff wrong. You do want to be corrected on it, though obviously we try not to get too much wrong. (laughs) And we should have mentioned it, and now we have. Well, while we are in a mea culpa mood, let's keep going here. Let me also correct the record on something I said last week about one of the candidates for mayor of Ottawa. I once referred to Catherine McKenney, the second place finisher, as she, and was helpfully informed by someone on Twitter that McKenney's pronouns are they, which I actually knew, but I screwed it up anyway. That is so annoying, but I'm happy to correct the record here. And one more while we're at it. We also neglected to tell people about a mayor's race in Manitoba that might be of some interest to our listeners. Why? 
because the leading candidate to become mayor of Winnipeg was another former Kathleen Wynne cabinet minister. That's Glenn Murray. And again, it was another very tight race. But in the end, Murray came up just a bit short in his bid to reclaim his old job. Yes, he was once the mayor back in the day. The winner, Scott Gillingham, scored only 27.5% of the vote. But that was enough to win over Murray's 25%, a difference of more than 4,000 votes. So Glenn Murray has had, JMM, a bit of a tough losing streak. He ran for the Ontario Liberal leadership, but never made it to the finish line. He dropped out and backed Kathleen Wynne. He then ran for the Green Party leadership, lost to Annemie Paul. And now he has run for mayor of Winnipeg and lost that too. Politics can be a very tough business. Mr. Speaker, we are committed to keeping children in class. We made a clear commitment to the people of this province that we will stand up and ensure kids are in school without disruption right to June. And nothing should get in the way of that commitment. Mr. Speaker, we gave the union an opportunity. And with great regret, they said no. They're going to proceed with the strike on Friday. That's Education Minister Stephen Lecce in the legislature on Monday, confirming that the government will introduce legislation barring QP workers from striking, which those workers would otherwise have been in a legal position to do as of Friday of this week. JMM, the legislation was introduced in the House shortly before we began recording, but why don't you lay out some of the issues for our listeners here? You would normally expect there to be a court challenge to legislation like this uh, when governments have legislated striking workers uh, back to work or certainly striking school workers back to work. There have always been court challenges. And uh, the last time there was a big to do about this under the liberals, uh, those court challenges were successful. The right to strike is protected uh, by the charter uh, and the right to collectively bargain is uh, also a protected charter right. But in this case, uh, the government has a trump card. The Ford government is once again going to use the notwithstanding clause of the charter, which allows the legislature to override uh, some of the rights guaranteed in the charter, uh, including, in this case, uh, the right of peaceful assembly and some other rights that uh, have have been read by the courts to uh, contribute to uh, strike rights and collective bargaining rights. So... uh, and we're kind of in a, in a bit of a terra incognita here. Uh, normally, this would go to a court and we would have a very lengthy argument about its, its constitutionality. Uh, I expect that this may still make it to a court, but it's very difficult to see what the, the legal grounds are going to be for the unions to challenge it, because when this bill is passed by the legislature, uh, their charter rights will have been overridden. Uh, several other rights under Ontario law generally, Ontario labor law, uh, Ontario human rights law, uh, those are being... Uh, what's the word we should use here? Suspended, mm-hmm. um, overridden, whatever you, you prefer. Um, and uh, this, of course, you know, is to, as you mentioned, stop the threat of a strike that the government said would disrupt a school year that uh, they do not believe can bear any more disruption. Quick little reminder here. The current Charter of Rights and Freedoms was passed by the Parliament of Canada in 1982. And from 1982 until 2018, No government in the province of Ontario used the notwithstanding clause of the charter. This is now the second time that the Ford government will use it. And, of course, they threatened to use it a third time. Ultimately, didn't have to because they got a better court decision, better uh, in their opinion, uh, as it related to reducing the size of Toronto City Council. So all those decades never used once. The last four years used twice. We're in a different era. 
And another reminder that the workers in question here make on average $39,000 a year, and the province is offering anywhere from 1.5 to 2.5 percent annual increases, depending on how much money the workers are currently earning. They are looking for much bigger increases and say they deserve them. CMG, the Canadian Media Guild, which represents some of the workers here at TVO, including Steve and I, uh, did issue a statement uh, in solidarity with QP workers affected by the government's uh, back-to-work legislation. Uh, That statement reads, in part, uh, In solidarity with education workers in Ontario, the Canadian Media Guild is calling on the Ford government to end its attacks on workers' rights in the province. This lack of respect for the bargaining process has raised fears among all education workers in the province, including those at TVO, that are about to start bargaining their collective agreements. As it stands right now, the legislation introduced by the government does not apply to workers here at TVO, but we did want to be transparent with our listeners about this statement from uh, one of our unions. The NDP's finance critic, Catherine Fife, tweeted the other day that, quote, the money to invest in public education exists to prevent a strike and rebuild confidence back in the system. It's almost like they, the government, want the fight and disruption. And Chandra Pasma, the NDP member for Ottawa West Nepean, added on Twitter, the lowest paid education workers have given strike notice because they can't afford to keep using food banks. So I've got a message for Stephen Lecce. She says, come to the table on Tuesday with a reasonable deal that saves our kids school year and pay these workers a decent wage. Uh, I think suffice it to say the government took a different tactic. Uh, they have a different view on this. Uh, while we are here, can I also just add that Catherine Fife, whom I just referenced a moment ago, surprised a lot of people this past week by saying she is not going to run for the NDP leadership. Any guesses why? Well, uh, when we spoke about this previously, I had suggested that uh, Fife and Styles, uh, sorry, Marat Styles, I should say, the uh, only declared uh, candidate so far, uh, are competing for some of the same support within the NDP that uh, she, she might not be able to differentiate herself enough from Styles, who has that early lead. The NDP leadership race does seem to be trending towards a, a bit of a coronation so far. There is only one declared candidate in Styles, uh, but you know, never say never. Uh, the, we we thought that the BC NDP leadership race was he- heading towards a coronation, and uh, that got uh, messy, which is unpleasant for the NDP, but fun for journalists. So, uh, you know, we'll see what happens. I saw Wayne Gates at the legislature last week, the MPP for Niagara Falls, and he, of course, was speculating a few weeks back that he might jump into the race. And I asked him just sort of, uh, oh, by and by, uh, what are your intentions? When are you getting uh, going to make a decision on this one way or another? And he assured me I'd be the first to know. And then I assured him back that I'm sure I won't be the first to know. So why don't you just tell me right now? Alas, he did not. But, um, but I agree with you. It is certainly looking like a coronation for Styles at the moment. The size and scale of the events were not going to be able to be handled by any one police jurisdiction, certainly not mine, uh, that this was a national scope event. Um, this was borne out by a wide variety of polarizing issues, not the least of which was the the vaccine mandates, but there were many other anti-government sentiment expressed at all three levels of government. This was the underpinnings that created this event and brought it substantially into our city were well beyond the Police Services Act mandate of me as a police chief 
and the Ottawa Police Service in the police of jurisdiction. That was Chief Peter Slowly at last Friday's session of the Emergencies Act inquiry, making his case that uh, the police service he then led was, uh, let's say, in over their head. Uh, that was just one of the several memorable moments in Slowly's testimony last week, and it continued into this week. Uh, it's pretty clear that the former chief of Ottawa Police uh, hasn't enjoyed the experience, uh, which might explain why Ontario's premier doesn't want to join him there. Well, yeah, Doug Ford has officially filed a legal challenge to avoid testifying in front of the Public Order Emergency Commission in Ottawa, looking into Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's use of the Emergencies Act earlier this year. Lawyers from the Ontario Attorney General's office will argue in court later today that the premier cannot be forced to testify. And JMM, we talked to, I guess we touched on this a bit last week, but let's remind us, what's the argument they're advancing here? The premier is arguing that his parliamentary privilege as an MPP means he cannot be forced to testify at the inquiry. Uh, as you said, we went over this a bit last week and I predicted a, a bit of what the government's lawyers would argue in court. And wonder of wonders, I was right. <laughs> um, to, to refresh people's memories, any MPP Premier or not, has certain privileges thanks to both the Constitution and Ontario law. One of those privileges is they can't be forced to testify in a civil court proceeding. The Emergency Act inquiry has the power to compel testimony, but only the same powers that a civil court case would have. So Ford has some pretty strong grounds to argue that he cannot be forced to testify. Now, that is totally separate from the argument about whether he should testify anyway. Well, exactly. And the optics on this, I think everybody uh, is acknowledging, don't look great right now. And it's got people at Queen's Park asking, why wouldn't the premier want to testify? What's the big deal? And the speculation consistently points to an obvious answer, which is he's afraid of something embarrassing emerging. And you start to ask yourself, okay, what could that be? And again, you and I are going to get into a bit of speculation here. I don't have any hard evidence for this, but I'm going to throw it out there. Ford's former chief of staff, Dean French, whom the premier fired once upon a time, got involved in this convoy situation. People may not remember, but he did offer himself up as a mediator in hopes of resolving the occupation of Ottawa. He didn't have any official capacity in doing so. And frankly, the feds didn't seem too interested in dealing with him. But I do wonder whether something went on behind the scenes with the premier and his former chief of staff that Doug Ford doesn't want out there. Now, I have to say, you know, credit where it's due. The premier has done a reasonably good job holding his temper in recent months, uh, particularly in the lead up to the election. But this convoy business really got to him late last week when the interim liberal leader, John Fraser, accused Doug Ford of hiding in his basement. That was the term he used. You were hiding in your basement while Ottawa was under siege. And the premier blew his stack, accusing Fraser of being part of, quote, the most politically corrupt government this province has ever seen, which is great rhetoric. But I guess the journalist in me wants to say it's empirically provably false, as allegations go. There were far more corrupt governments in this province a century ago. Anyway, for the record, what do you make of all this? You know, I get why the premier wouldn't want to do this, even just knowing nothing about the events as they ensued. You know, I've never had to answer a lawyer's questions in a high stakes setting, but even if you've done nothing wrong, I can't imagine it's a lot of fun. <laughs> you mentioned, you know, he doesn't want to testify in case something embarrassing comes up. There is something even worse. Something embarrassing can, can, can come up and he's not there to defend himself. Uh, you know, there are many, many more days ahead of us of testimony. Uh, lots of more documents could be presented. So many people were wrapped up in this affair as it was going on, including uh, many provincial uh, uh, public servants who, who have yet to testify in some cases. Uh, you know, 
it, it is certainly possible that something uh, very damaging is going to uh, come up anyway. Maybe something that the premier does not even know about because it's just such a big, uncontrolled thing. Then he's going to be in the worst of all possible worlds uh, with something damaging coming up at the inquiry while he's uh, busy arguing that he shouldn't have to testify. And then he may actually just have to drag himself back to the inquiry just to defend himself. I mean, it, it just it doesn't make a ton of sense to me. I will put it that way. I remind people of four things. Premier Kathleen Wynne, Premier Dalton McGuinty, Premier Mike Harris, Premier George Drew. They all testified at public inquiries. Uh, so if Doug Ford does, uh, he'll add his name to that list. And if he doesn't, he may have to explain why, if those four could, why can't he? Federal funding has fallen to just 22% of the cost of health care in Canada, and it continues to decline. Provinces and territories are doing their part, but we need the federal government to restore funding now to keep our systems strong. A message from Canada's premiers. That is a clip from an ad that uh, provincial premiers from across Canada have been running. They are demanding a $28 billion increase to the Canada Health Transfer. This is the, the primary federal grant to provinces for health care. Uh, the premiers say this would bring the federal contribution towards health care costs from the 22% it is currently to 35%. Uh, the feds, not surprisingly, uh, dispute the math and say that, in fact, uh, once you take into account uh, tax points that the federal government made available to the provinces, uh, that, in fact, they're already at 35%, and that you know any increases that they need to provide will be more modest. Uh, Steve, what do you think is going on here? I always see it as my responsibility to be the, uh, the, the person who adds some historical context here because I'm the old fogey on this podcast. You're the young fogey, incidentally, but I'm the old fogey on this podcast. You're not the first or even the third person to call me a young fogey. <laughs> well, let's take everybody back to the mid-1960s and remind everybody that the federal government brought in the Medicare program uh, very much against the wishes of the province of Ontario because it started as a 50-50 cost-sharing program. And the premier of Ontario of the day, John Robart, said it was a Machiavellian scheme. That was the expression he used. This is a Machiavellian scheme, this Medicare program. And it wasn't that he was against Medicare. Obviously, uh, he, th he thought it was a good idea for people to have health care taken care of by publicly insured services. And, of course, Medicare has turned out to be one of our most cherished Canadian social programs. But Premier Robarts was right to be concerned about the notion that the federal government would pony up half the costs in the beginning and then bit by bit withdraw. And that's exactly what happened. The, uh, you know, the feds have not been 50-50 partners in this thing for decades. And I think at one point, the, um, uh, the amount that they were contributing to the costs of health care uh, in the province of Ontario was something like 22, 23 cents on the dollar, which is a hell of a long way from 50-50. Now, every few years, the feds and the provinces do this dance where the provinces say, you're not giving us enough money. And the feds say, well, your math is wrong, because if you include all these other things we do for you, it looks a lot better than you're portraying it. And the feds are now saying, well, hang on a sec. We just bailed you provinces out of COVID bankruptcy, basically. 90 cents of every dollar spent in COVID relief was a federal dollar. The feds have taken on massive debt to keep the country afloat during COVID. Now Ontario finds it's got a much more buoyant bottom line than it thought. The financial accountability officer just confirmed that in a report last week. And basically, the feds are saying, you want us to spend more on health care? Well, we're spending a lot already. If you want to spend more on health care, you raise your own taxes, you spend your own money, you've got the money. Over the long term, I, I do think that the provinces 
actually have a pretty strong argument that we need to rethink either the services that uh, are currently prov- provincial responsibilities or the revenues that are available to them, right? Education and healthcare are really big, expensive government services, and provincial revenues uh, don't always keep up in the same way as federal revenues do, uh, especially in the context of aging populations, because as a population ages, uh, it tends to have fewer workers uh, and also higher healthcare bills. And that's a real uh, double whammy for provincial budgets. But as you say, right now, here in autumn 2022, it's also the case that a number of these provincial governments have engaged in either tax cuts or cash rebates to voters, or in some cases, both, all while pleading poverty. And as you rightly just mentioned, the FAO is saying that Ontario is suddenly in a surprisingly strong fiscal position. So that, I think, inevitably undermines some of the claims that the provinces are making. So, uh, I mentioned tax points at the top there. Should I actually explain those for our listeners? <laughs> Do you know what's funny? Uh, I've heard the expression a million times, yes, but the feds transfer tax points to the provinces, so that should count for something. And I've only been covering this for 40 years, and I still don't know exactly what it means. So, if you can explain it to me, I'd be delighted to hear it. So, in general, the federal government and the provincial governments uh, both collect for the most part, the same kinds of taxes, income taxes, corporate taxes, uh, sales taxes. And in some cases, there have been times historically, uh, it was a big deal in the 70s and early 80s, if I remember correctly, uh, or rather, if I've read the history correctly. Because um, you weren't alive then. Okay. Uh, yeah, yes. yeah, exactly. Yeah. I certainly wasn't like reading <laughs> in like 82. So, as I say, the federal government would basically give up certain uh, taxes in the sense of like it would lower the share of taxes that it was collecting and the provinces would then move into the space that that created. So if you want to think about this just as a very simple model in terms of like the, the HST, when I was a kid, it was 15% and then Stephen Harper uh, was elected and he cut the uh, HST by two points. In theory, Ontario could have raised its share of the sales tax by two points when Stephen Harper uh, cut the sales tax by two points. And that would have been uh, a net transfer of tax points in that sense. Because the overall rate we've been paying would be the same. Yeah. Ontario taxpayers wouldn't be paying any more or less in taxes, but the balance of money would have gone from Ottawa to the province. And you can do the same basic exercise for other taxes as well. Uh, Now, of course, in that specific case, Ontario did not increase its sales taxes and uh, taxpayers got to keep those savings. But when we talk about the transfer of tax points, that's fundamentally what we are talking about. And in the case of health transfers, you know, the federal government is counting, in some cases, you know, the transfer of tax points from like 30 and 40 years ago. And uh, there's some argument from the provinces that whatever power those moves had in the 1980s, in the 1970s, they don't fundamentally address what is happening in healthcare today. Can I tell you something? Yes. That is the first and best explanation of tax point transfers I've ever heard. I finally get it. Thank you. Well, I really hope I'm right. (laughs) (laughs) 
That's the On Poly podcast for Tuesday, November 1st, 2022. JMM, would you indulge me for another moment for one of my occasional walks down memory lane? Well, you've already met your quota for this one, for this episode, but yes, <laughs> uh, please go on. I appreciate the generosity. There is so much at Queen's Park that is needlessly, stupidly partisan, but there was an event last week that wasn't, and so I want to give it some attention. Everyone was singing out of the same hymn book because members gathered to pay tribute to a former MPP first elected in 1959, which, believe it or not, is even before I was born, who died 14 months ago. I speak, of course, about Ontario's 18th Premier, Bill Davis. Here are snippets from speeches about Mr. Davis from the NDPs, Peggy Sattler, the Liberals, John Fraser, the Greens, Mike Schreiner, and finally, the Tories, Doug Ford. His approach was the opposite of divide and conquer, the antithesis of polarization and unilateralism. He was an innovative changemaker who recognized the importance of listening to opposing views and taking time to make decisions. Premier Davis was a leader that was ahead of his time. Everyone who calls this province home are the beneficiaries of his life and his legacy. So I want to say to his friends and his family, and especially his wife, Kathleen, thank you. Thank you for sharing Bill with us. And to Premier Davis, may we all aspire to your legacy. I was just one of the many who was inspired by him. I was impressed by Premier Davis's longevity as Ontario's leader, but I was even more impressed by the quality of his leadership, his integrity, his courage, his commitment, his goodwill, and of course, his good humor. He certainly left big shoes to fill, and all premiers since his time have been measured against his legacy. And while there will never be another William Grenville Davis, as public servants, I believe we should all aspire to conduct ourselves in a way that would make him proud. On behalf of the people of Ontario, I want to thank the Davis family for sharing Bill with us for so many years. Now, just a reminder here, Mr. Davis was the education minister in the 1960s who brought in the college system, OISE, TVO. He saved the French language school system. When he became premier in 1971, he stopped construction of the Spadina Expressway. That's why Allen Road stops at Eglinton. Doesn't go further south, so therefore it did not destroy neighborhoods like Forest Hill and the Annex, which surely would have happened. He created the first Ministry of the Environment. He was an essential ally to the current Prime Minister's father in repatriating the Constitution with a Charter of Rights and Freedoms. He chose the location of the Sky Dome, now the Rogers Centre, at the foot of John Street in downtown Toronto, which was a great decision. Frankly, it kick-started so much downtown activity Mr. Davis was worried that he didn't want our capital city's downtown to look like so many American city downtowns where they roll up the sidewalks at 5 p.m. every afternoon. Yes, there was the joke about the Davis government's operating philosophy, which was, don't put off to tomorrow what you can avoid doing altogether. Yes, there was a bit of that. However, he won four straight elections. No one's done that in a hundred years. In fact, JMM, he never lost. He won his Brampton seat seven times. He won the PC leadership convention in 1971, and then he won four general elections for the PC party, and I'm convinced he would have won a fifth had he decided to contest the 1985 election rather than retire from public life. So we say, well done, MPPs. Great speeches, great tributes to, frankly, the last Titan at Queen's Park. I will just briefly say that I, I always enjoy those days at Queen's Park where, as you say, everybody sings from the same hymn book, and sometimes it's 
moments like that where you're celebrating a former MPP. Uh, I've also seen it on more solemn occasions when everybody is acknowledging a, a great historical wrong or a tragedy. I think MPPs are always at their uh, best in those moments. Here, here. Uh, a reminder to our listeners to also check out our newsletter. You can subscribe to that at tvo.org slash newsletters. This week, we're talking about the strong mayor powers in Toronto and Ottawa and the different approaches that may be taken in those two different cities. Any feedback you have, we're happy to hear it. Sometimes we quote you on the top of our program here. Uh, we love to get the feedback, good, bad, or indifferent. Write us an email at onpolitics at tvo.org. This week's episode was produced and edited by Tiffany Lam. Our managing editor is Shahir Tajvidi. Production support from Carla Lucetta, Nikki Ashworth, and Jonathan Hallowell. COVID is not over yet, people, so let's remember, as my dad likes to say, stay positive, test negative. Stay safe, Steve. Stay safe, Steve.